John chapter 4 is where we're at. I'm just going to cover a few verses. We're kind of winding up this little passage. Well, it's not really a little passage, but we're winding up this passage with Jesus and his ministry in Sychar, in Samaria. And there's just a few things that I want to bring to your attention this morning that I that I looked at this I almost I almost jumped ahead really on this and and uh, started at verse 43 and when where they departed uh, after the two days that they spent in Sychar Jesus and the disciples departed for the Galilee and yet there were just a couple of things there that I wanted to bring out to your attention so Reading out of, uh, and I'm, I know I'm backing up into a little bit of what we looked at last week, but not a lot. But reading back into uh, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 38, it says, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have come into their labor. Now, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. And he told me all things that I have done. That was the word that this woman testified about Jesus. And so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one truly is the Savior of the world. I'm going to read verse 42 to you again. It says, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one truly is the Savior of the world. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. First of all, regarding this idea of what it means to believe in you and what it means for you to be truly the Savior of the world. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would fill me with your spirit, Lord, that you would speak through me this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. So this is an, a progression that's going on here. Remember, Jesus is with this woman at the well, and she uh, had talked with him, and he was sharing with her that she had had five husbands, and the man that she was living with now was not her husband. And, of course, then she begins to sense that he is a prophet and says that to him. And starts talking about the Messiah. And Jesus very plainly reveals to this woman, the one who is speaking to you, uh, M, he. Or he says, the one who is speaking to you, that I am. It's really a, a proclamation of deity that, that he says uh, earlier in this chapter. And he says, I am the one speaking to you. Which is really how it's uh, put together in the Greek. And she doesn't have a full understanding, but she is so um, amazed, 
convinced to the degree that she can be convinced? Because I, 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 think, I think we have stages of belief, right? Now, hopefully I believe more in Jesus now today than I did when I was very, very young. But at the same time, that young, innocent level of belief was enough for me to pray and receive Christ and ask him to be my Savior. It's grown. But to me, looking back, I was eight years old. That was saving faith. And, And to the degree that it can be. Now, how much faith can an eight-year-old place in really anything? Actually, they probably place more faith in things than you and I do as adults. If you believe in your heart that, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so... These people in Sychar, they hear the testimony of this woman and, and, and they are moved enough to stop what they are doing and go down to the well and hear Jesus. It says that they believed. Verse 39 talks about this, where they believed in him through the testimony of the woman. Notice it just doesn't say they believed, but they believed in him. It's in, it, it, I thought it was interesting because it's a verb, and it's in the aorist tense. Remember, the aorist tense is normally translated in a past tense uh, grammatical structure in the English. The Greek doesn't have past tense. The English doesn't have an aorist tense, so that's the best that can be done but it, uh, the aorist tense is talking about a snapshot of time like right now okay just a second ago when i said right now that would be now aorist tense you went you you, understand, you get the idea so it's it's thought in our english thinking minds as past tense they believed and then it goes on to say and this is where i, I find it fascinating because in verse 42 we see a progression of their belief. Verse 42 again, and I'll read it to you a third time now, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one truly is the Savior of the world. It's not because of what you said that we believe. Now, It's the same Greek word, pastuo, for belief or believe, with an exception. It is now in the present tense. Present tense, again, in the Greek is a little different. It is an action in process or in the state of being with no assessment of that action's completion. In other words, it's something that's ongoing. What this tells me, and I may be taking a little bit of liberty with this, and your mileage may vary, and it normally does anyway, and I'm fine with that. 
but they've entered into a living faith. They've entered into a belief that carries them and continues with them. A faith that carries them and continues with them. I thought that was fascinating. I thought it was even more fascinating this morning. I had a conversation with somebody right before the service even. And, and we were talking about this without even really talking about this. The children of Israel. When they refused to go into the promised land, what happened? They roamed around the wilderness for 40 years, right? Was that God's punishment? Or was that God's giving them the best that he could give them considering the level of belief that they had? Okay, if you're in the desert for 40 years, that's no picnic. But they had the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They had manna that was given them to them. How many days a week? Six. And on the sixth day, they were to collect for two days because on the seventh day, they rested. There was no manna. God took care of them. Their sandals did not wear out. Their clothes did not wear out. That's still grace. That's still providential care. Even though they weren't really living in a living faith, and, and, and particularly because of their unbelief, we'll flip this around 180 degrees, which if I'm willing to bet, and I didn't take the time, of course this was, again, we just talked about this a couple of minutes before the service. Their unbelief in the Septuagint was probably also in the Eros tense. I mentioned the Septuagint because their unbelief would have been documented in Hebrew, right? Except for in the Septuagint, which is in the Greek. They had a moment of unbelief which changed everything and... They had to learn to live by faith in a different way. So that fascinates me because when I think about this, I don't think that any of us are really on God's A plan. God called us to go left. We went right, right, certain places in our life. We, we, we made a decision, and some of us even made those decisions knowing that, God, I really don't want what you're calling me to do. But uh, that's another time, uh, discussion for another time. And in the end, to me, it really doesn't matter anyway. Because his, we just sang it, right? His grace is enough. His grace is enough. His grace is enough for me. Even if we continue <laughs> to mess up, and at times we will, at times we do. But his grace is enough because he is calling us to walk into, to enter into a belief that carries us and continues with us. And what I love about 
our relationship to God. I'll even back that up a second. What I love about God is in the book of Lamentations, one of my favorite books, it says that his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. No matter what you did earlier today, what you did yesterday, earlier last week, what you did last month, what you did last year. Great is his faithfulness. Faithfulness, the concept of faithfulness, by the way, is directly tied to belief. The word in the Greek, pastuo, means belief, but it can also mean faith. It's the same idea. That is, this willingness to trust, which is how we respond to God on our part. And yet God continues to be gracious. God continues to be kind. His mercies are new every morning. This was the belief that the Samaritans, who were despised by the Jews, whom their ancestors had set up a rival temple, that God really didn't, I don't believe, have much to do with. But nonetheless, Jesus goes right in to the midst of these people, and he tells them things about themselves that only they and they could know. And not only do they believe, but they confess that he is the Savior of the world. Uh, and so, boy, I thought about this. And what do we believe? What do we believe about Jesus? See, they got saved. And they got saved by the Savior. This word in the Greek is sotor, S-O-T-E-R, if you want to write it down in the English. But uh, it means someone who rescues, someone who saves, the Savior, the deliverer, the preserver. And it's really used uh, as a divine title or a title of divinities. It's even used in secular, in secular Greek literature. Asclepius, which was one of their false gods. He was a god of healing. He was referred to as a savior. And as I, as I started to think through this, and I, I got curious about this, this word, and so I dug into the, I dug into the, uh, the Septuagint because it's just easier for me. And the first mention the first, and this fascinated me, the first mention of God as a Savior is really not d- directly given to us until first, or excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 22. 
Second Samuel chapter 22, the, in, in, the, in the New King James Bible, it's the first time the word Savior actually appears. David is speaking, he says, the God of my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. Because David is writing this because he had been on the run from Saul. Thinking back on that, he'd been on the... You think about David's life. How many times was David on the run? From Saul, from the Philistines, from his own son. And yet, how many times... And, and I... I, I didn't have the time to really write or the room and the notes really to write them all down. But, but often in the Old Testament, particularly when David is talking about God as his Savior, he's recognizing that God is his deliverer. He's recognizing that God is his refuge, which he, he includes here. And, and even what, what fascinated me, now in the Hebrew it's a common noun, the word Savior. Somehow it got translated in the Septuagint into a feminine noun, which I found to be fascinating. Recognizing the attribute of who God is and how God saves, how God delivers, how God redeems. It doesn't even use the word savior. It uses a different word, really uh, this, this idea of a deliverer. But we have these Verses that declare God as our Savior to us. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 3, reading out the New King James, it says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel who saves you. I have given Egypt as your ransom and Ethiopia and Syene on your behalf. And then what struck me too was Psalm 24, verse 5. I'll give it to you out of the New King James, and I'm going to read it to you again out of the Septuagint. English translation of the Septuagint, that is. It says, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. It's translated a little bit differently in the English translation of the Septuagint. It says, this one will receive a blessing from the Lord and mercy from God, his Savior. And so out of the Septuagint, we have this, this expression that's a little bit more personal. That God is our Savior. Now, the early Christians... That was one of the key terms, confessional terms, that they gave for Jesus. It was one of their designations of him. It was just really, in, in a sense, it was equal to the confession of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Savior. Because in, in, the, in the Greek world, they had many lords, they had many saviors. In fact, uh, um, 
Virgil writes in the, in the Aeneid, which was written uh, somewhere between 29 and 19 BC. He refers to Augustus, Caesar Augustus, as, as the Savior. Um, and so there were these rival ideas. And the early church grabbed a hold of this idea of, of, of Jesus as Lord, which I think had a twofold purpose. I think it, it, it had this, uh, this idea of Jesus as Lord, as, as, as the one who was the supreme being. But it was also, and that would be the Greek thinking, but it was also in Hebrew thinking, Because the Greek word Lord, follow me on this one. I've shared this with you before. The Greek word Lord, which is kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. That word is used in the Septuagint, Old Testament, Greek translation. That word is used in place of the proper Hebrew name, for God. So anywhere where in your Old Testament, and we have, if you have a new King James, it's translated from a Hebrew text, not a Greek text, the Old Testament. And anywhere where you have that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that signifies that in the original text it was a reference to Yahweh. Y-H, literal, well, English transliteration, Y-H-W-H. But because the Jews had such a high reverence for the name of God, they would not say his name, but rather they would refer to him as the Lord. In fact, there, there's, there are some stories, I haven't done enough digging on this, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Um, that Hebrew scribes, that whenever they would write in the Hebrew text, copying the Hebrew scriptures, when they ever came to the name of the Lord, before they wrote it, they would change pens. Before they wrote it, they would take a ritual bath. Before they wrote it, they would even change clothes and be a, an exp a ceremonial expression of being undefiled before they would even write the name of God into the text. That's how much they re revered the name of God. So when I read in my New Testament, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... I'm reading that through a Hebrew context. In other words, what Paul, who was a Hebrew, is saying to us in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is God. That's how I translate that. I think that makes sense, a lot more sense than just this supreme being. It's an exclamation and a recognition of his deity which he told the woman at the well earlier in this chapter in verse 26, I believe that phrase, I am, is also an expression of his deity. The early church understood him as Lord. They understood him as Savior. 
this really fascinates me because you guys rem you guys know what an ichthus is? Ichthus is the Greek word for fish, by the way. But remember the, the I, especially with the Jesus Revolution movie. I hope it comes back. I really like it. The the fish with the it has a, a, an iota, which is an I in the English, and and then it has a, a um, gosh, I can't remember this. It's like a T. Um, an X, which is a G for in the Greek. So it's an I-X-T-H-U-S, the ichthus, which is a representation of Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. And those were found, those, that, those, they were, they were found in like the catacombs, uh, old drawings on the catacomb walls of, of a fish. And sometimes with those, with those five letters inside of the fish. You guys have all seen this, right? I'm not, I'm not talking about it. You look at me like, you, no, you don't, what do you mean? Yeah, of course you have. Um, I, I'd love to see those things come back. I that stands for Jesus, the Chi, which stands for Christ, the Messiah, uh, the TH, uh, which stands for Theos, the, uh, the U, which stands for Son, and then the S, which stands for Savior. Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. It was in one, really, th this even predates the creeds that we, that we uh, um, recite. A very primitive early church confession of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. He's God. He is the Son. He is the Savior. And here you have these half-breeds who the Jews wanted nothing to do with recognizing that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, we only find this expression, Savior of the world, just a few times, really, in, in the Gospel of John. It's actually, this is really the only time we see it. It's also given to us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. But, but the thing is, is John really hits this idea of Jesus being the Savior of the world in his writings. It really, it really kind of goes together with, with John the Baptist's confession that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First John, uh, not First John, John chapter 1, verse 29. In John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus says, I believe Jesus says, God so loved the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. John understood. The Samaritans understood that, that they, the world needs a Savior. Not all the world comes to him, unfortunately. But the world needs a savior. Now, I love this designation of Jesus as savior because, you know, it really, it really, it implies that we need rescuing. It implies that we need saviors and saving. 
the, remember the Samaritans, they were looking for the Tahib, right? That was their version of the Messiah. And they, they, they had a lot of things wrong about that. Although their theology may not have been correct, and I don't believe it was. I believe the longing and the desire for a Messiah in their heart was. See, that's to me what's really important. What do we do with that desire? What do we do with that longing? What do we do with that yearning? What do we do with that desire, that yearning, that longing that we, we encounter with other people? See, the Samaritans understood that they needed something beyond themselves. They needed something beyond their abilities. They needed something beyond their spiritual practices. However genuine those practices were or how pretentious they were, it didn't matter. They needed something beyond it. They needed someone to stand in the gap. Job understood that. Where he talked about the daysment. Someone to stand between me and God. We need a Savior. The world needs a Savior. And what a vivid contrast of this confession that the Samaritans gave with that of the Pharisees. In John 12, verse 19, Jesus is coming in into uh, Jerusalem just prior to the Passover, and, and they're complaining, and they're saying the whole world has gone after him. You see, the thing is, the Pharisees did not believe they needed to be saved. And I, I will think out loud in front of you. If someone doesn't need, feel that they need to be saved, I really wonder if they can or will be saved. See, that's a tough call. That's really a tough call. But nonetheless, we come to the Lord because of our need. The problem is And I think one of the reasons why we do not grow in the faith at times. We stop recognizing our own need. Now, I feel pretty confident in the biblical doctrine. Now, there's some exceptions. And I'm not going to get into this this morning because I'm, I'm, I'll muddy the waters too much, I think. But I feel pretty confident in this idea of, of being eternally secure in Christ. Okay. Thank God that we're eternally secure in Christ. If we're not eternally secure in Christ, then we're in probably a lot of trouble.
But we came to Christ probably because we recognized a need. And when we stop recognizing that need for him in our lives, we are prone to do it according to our own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, to Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Or there are those times it feels like he's absent. Ever had God absent, feel like God is absent? <sighs> if you haven't, I hope you do. And you get it out of your system. Or he's probably just mad at me. I always feel like God's mad at me, so don't feel bad, okay? Why? Because that tells me I don't really have the right view of God. But also, I'm getting there, okay? I'm getting there. Hopefully you are too. But I have as much of a need for the Savior as I did the day I asked him into my life. I want to say maybe more. Maybe more. And they recognized. They recognized their deficiency. Because when we, we, if we don't recognize our need, we will continue to do things according to the way that Frank Sinatra sang about it. Boy, I'm dating myself. You guys are all relating to me. Anyway, my way. We do it my way. And, and, and I think sometimes those times that God is like absent, either that or you have the volume turned down, right? But I think some of those times when you feel like God is distant, perhaps it is that God, that, that God is just kind of letting you do your thing. And letting you do what you want to do. And kind of see how it goes. And allowing us to walk through life, hopefully just a period of time in life, where we don't necessarily feel his presence, his power, His grace, His love. So that that in itself becomes the attention getter. See, that's the Jackie Gleason term, all right? The attention getter, okay? See me later if you want to know the, the reference. I'm not going to do it on a sermon, but anyway. But the thing that gets our attention in our life.
And so at, even at times we think, okay, well, okay, I got to read the Bible more. I got to pray more. I got to go to church more. I got to do more, 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 more. That's another form of performance. Now, should you all read the Bible? Yeah. Should you all pray? Yeah. Should you all come to church? Yeah, I'll stop, okay? But I, I just finished a really fascinating book that said those things in them of themselves do not grow you. They don't. I agree. Unless you come to the word willing to obey what you've heard. Unless you come to the word, capital W, willing to obey what you've heard in prayer. Unless you come to the capital W word, willing to receive that which he has for you in the assembly of the saints. In other words, what, what do we do with what we have already been given? I, I, there are times I just, I feel like I could never buy enough books, right? If you've seen my, it's a good thing you can't see my office, but anyway. Um, there's just books everywhere, right? And, and it's like, I've, I've got like six books I want to buy right now. Um, I, I scaled it down from about 13. And of those books, I bought two. Okay, I bought two. Because um, I'm like, I still got an office full of stuff I need to delve into. So stop buying books, Mike, right? It's the same thing with... And I, I think those reading the Bible through the year... Pro, I've never done one, by the way. If you do them, God bless you, all right? But I think those reading the Bible through the year things, I think they're great and they're wonderful and, they're, and if it works for you, God bless you, all right? But, but to me, I've got to worry about what I just read. Instead of worrying about getting to the next chapter. What is it that the capital word, capital W, the word, Jesus Christ, the Logos, you know, you knew who I was talking about. What is it that he wants to say to me from the word that I've already read rather than worried about getting through six chapters because I've got to stay on schedule? I'd really rather just hear a few verses and hear the Spirit of God speak to me and be willing to respond than go through six chapters and check it off and say, yeah, I'm, I'm on it, man. It's March 19th, and I'm doing my daily reading. Because there will not be an entrance exam to get into heaven. But there will be the hand of the Savior who will be there to invite you in.